My name is Kirk Dunn, and this is the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. I'm an actor, writer, and knitter, and I'm also known as the Knitting Pilgrim. I earned that title because in 2003, I was awarded an Ontario Arts Council Chalmers Grant to knit stitched glass, an installation of three large panels designed in the style of stained glass windows, which look at the commonalities and the conflicts between the three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They took me 15 years to knit. And when the project was complete, my wife Claire and I wrote a play called The Knitting Pilgrim about my experience knitting stitch glass and my research into interfaith relations. One thing that wasn't covered in the play was the meaning behind the imagery in the knitted panels. So this series explores each section in conversation because ultimately the project is about having conversations with empathy and curiosity about how we understand and sometimes misunderstand each other. Welcome to the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. In this episode, we'll be talking about a section of the Islamic window. And um, this section, uh, again, is, is outside of the crescent and the star. And because it's um, outside of the crescent and the star, it is it is a, an image of, um, of Islam that I was, or an aspect of Islam that I was, um, had questions about and, um, and was wondering about and was uh, challenged by. And so uh, it's looking at the, the balancing of the past with the present. And you can see that um, towards the top of the window, just below the skyline of the um, Muslim architecture, you can see a scale weighing two dates. Uh, on the left side is the year 632, which is the uh, year of the death of Muhammad. And then on the right side is the uh, year 2000, or the modern millennium. And this section symbolizes Islam's challenge in applying the context of the life and teaching of Muhammad in the modern world. And to help us look at this quest for balance within Islam, we're fortunate to have with us today Imam Jamal Rahman. Imam Rahman is a sought-after speaker on Islam, on Sufi spirituality, and on interfaith relations. And since 9-11, Jamal has been collaborating with Rabbi Ted Falcon and Pastor Don McKenzie. And this, this trio, uh, they're affectionately known as the Interfaith Amigos, They've been featured in the New York Times, um, on CBS News, on the BBC, and on various national public radio programs. Jamal is co-founder and Muslim Sufi minister at Interfaith Community Sanctuary and adjunct faculty at Seattle University. He's the uh, former co-host of Interfaith Talk Radio, and he travels internationally and nationally presenting at retreats and workshops. And he's the author of seven books, including... Sacred Laughter of the Sufis, Awakening the Soul with the Mullah's Comic Teaching Stories and Other Islamic Wisdom. <laughs> and as that title might tell you, Imam Jamal celebrates life through laughter, unity, and delight. And he is passionate about interfaith community building. And I am just thrilled to have him with us here today. Imam Jamal, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, I, I, I know that, um, that you travel extensively with, um, with the Interfaith Amigos, and, uh, 
and you three have um, had many discussions with uh, all sorts of people, many of them young, and uh, and they they ask they ask you all kind of the same sorts of things about about your your faith, and I think they're they're concerned about how to balance these um, these things they see as uh, oh what I, I guess. Um, things from the past that are that are being improperly um uh foisted onto the onto the present and the future can you talk about the, the kind of pushback you get there yes you know uh, i and my interview amigos we have traveled all over the country us even and even overseas and uh, probably since 9-11 we have done close to 250 presentations at universities uh, seminaries houses of worship and we get lots of questions from young people and also from the elderly who have gone beyond uh, their profession in the sense they're retired. They don't have an attachment to their particular profession. And the question is summarized, I think, in four basic questions. Why is it that in each of your traditions, in each of your scriptures, there is so much of exclusivity? Chosen people, the only way, uh, my book is superior to the others. That's number one. Number two, in your scriptures, why is there so much of violence? Number three, the unequal status of women. So much of patriarchal abuse. Mm -hmm. Number four, homophobia. And there's some other ones like, you know, apathy about social justice issues and planetary degradation, but these four ones come up again and again and again. Why? And what can you do about that? And that is why, in our experience, a lot of young people are leaving houses of worship because these are not addressed in a truthful way. Or if they're addressed, it's always accusing the other religion of that, but not looking into their own. So what we do, Kirk, you know, we talk about where the institution of our religion, my religion, has gone astray in each of those four areas. Not in your religion. Let me look at that mm -hmm. honestly, truthfully, shine the light of awareness. And what can we do that we change our thinking, shine a higher light? So some of those difficult verses, uh, those warped thinking, conditioned biases, can actually be changed to serve the common good. Because scripture, doesn't matter what from which religion, it has to offer hope, inspiration, and very critical, it has to serve the common good. That's, that's our mission, to talk about it and find out how we can shift it towards serving the common good. Right, yes. And I... I um... I find it, you know, when we when we speak of the the history of uh, Islam and where it started and and how, I, I guess how revolutionary it was when um, when uh, I guess the how surprising it was that um, uh, Muhammad came up with these ideas and and brought them to light. I mean, he treated women um, much differently than they were treated, you know, around him. He was, and he too, he was a uh, he was an orphan. Um, uh, and so he was all about taking care of the widow and the orphan and, um, and, and, and treating women really well. And I think the, uh, from my understanding is a lot of his, his biggest, um, 
victories were um, were achieved through peace and and, uh, and mercy rather than battle. I mean, he he outmaneuvered um, uh, people and and uh, then was merciful to them, and that's what that's what won won them over. And yet, you know, and then we're seeing, I think, now, it's certainly uh, one of the things that we, the problems we have um, nowadays is that uh, Western media tends to play on anything that's negative. So, I mean, with Islam, certainly, but with everything else, um, all these negative uh, stories are, are, uh, are pointed up, but not these really positive and in many ways, those revolutionary um, ways that uh, Muhammad uh, approached the world. Yes. We know, uh, a very good point, um, Kirk. So let me just take one example, the status of women in Islam. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I have to be honest, uh, it's a difficult subject because it varies widely uh, all across the Muslim world. If I take the status of women in Saudi Arabia, it is very different from the status of women in Bangladesh. In Bangladesh, for the last uh, decades, the head of state has been a woman continuously. In Saudi Arabia, it would be unheard of that you could have a woman being uh, you know, the prime minister or the president of a, of a country. But having said that, I have to acknowledge overall in the Muslim world, the status of women is very often a second class, a third class citizen. We have to be truthful uh, about this. But if I look in the Quran and the life of the Prophet Muhammad, in the 7th century, when it was unthinkable, then and even now, the Prophet gave women property rights, divorce rights, inheritance rights. And he was so much in favor of emancipation of women that the men of the 7th century Arabian Peninsula, they followed him reluctantly. They were obedient, reluctantly. But the moment he died, all those verses in the Quran that were in favor of women through their patriarchal interpretation began to shift to be in favor of men. Let me give you one example. When so many rights were given to women in in the seventh century, a lot of Arab men complained that uh, the women were getting spoiled and they were engaged in adultery including even they accused one of the wives of the Prophet Muhammad to be engaged in adultery. And then, and the men were saying that these women have to be punished, they have to be kept in place, they're being adulterous. And then a verse came from Allah saying that if a, a person accuses a woman of adultery, they have to produce not one, not two, but three or four actually, four reliable witnesses who actually saw the sexual penetration. I'm being vivid here because that's the revelation that came. They have to witness the intercourse. And if you cannot come up with those four reliable witnesses who saw that act, you'll be given so many lashes. As a result of which, uh, the men were so upset, they could no longer accuse the women of adultery. But they abuse that when in the subsequent centuries, if a woman complained, I have been raped, then they would take those verses and see how they would manipulate that. They would say, 
uh, oh, I'm so sorry you have been raped, but can you provide not one, not two, not three, but four reliable witnesses who actually saw the sexual penetration? Impossible. You know, you know people don't commit, you know, they don't do the rape in, in, in the public all the time, and you don't have four reliable witnesses. So it was very difficult for a Muslim woman to prove, until recently, they've changed it in some countries, uh, this law, which was a travesty of a law and the revelation which was meant to favor women. Mm -hmm. This is the patriarchal bias which sets in. And slowly, right. slowly it is changing. It is changing. Oh, well, that's, and that's good to hear. And how, how is that change happening? Is that, is that happening, um, you know, just yeah. as a result of modern society? Or what are the I things think, I think in Islam that are... higher consciousness, men are realizing, <laughs> mostly through education. I'll give you an example. Saudi Arabia is a very conservative Muslim country. Mm -hmm. Yet, if you look at the universities in Saudi Arabia, 60% of university students are women. They're getting the education. Over 40% of the doctors are women. A large number of women own wealth because Islamic law allows that. Iran, we think it's a conservative country. There are more women with PhDs than men. And some, in fact, many of the leaders who lead these liberation movements are, are, are women. So there's, there's a term now called women on the move. And uh, you know, a, a woman might, a young woman might tell me, Jamal, you're a nice guy, you speak on behalf of women, but you don't do anything. Uh, you know, we need to do something, we need to take, take some action. So women are taking action. And, and, and things are changing. So even in our house of worship, we have Muslims in our house of worship, we call it Interfaith Community Sanctuary. I'm in this church building, we own this church building. We have Friday prayers, and slowly, for example, not only us, but other people, we are having women give the sermons. We are having women lead the prayers, which is considered very innovative, new. Mm -hmm. But it is happening. Changes are happening all over the world. Uh, little by little, but very solid advances are being made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that... Uh... That makes sense, and it's a good, it's a good reminder that um, you know change does happen, and uh, and I guess it, it, if you look over the the time of or the, the length of history, in, in fact, things maybe um, can be might be said to be speeding up quite a bit. I mean, I, I do know that you know when I was born and when I was very young, um, I don't think a woman could have a bank account, you know. Um, just, just right, just here in North American society, it wasn't. He had, she had to get her husband's permission to, to open a bank account. Um, so you know, then those things, <clears throat> my kids would find un, unbelievable and unspeakable. And yet, uh, from what you're saying, it's um, we can look at these these small changes or these changes that um, are not yet the majority. These beginning changes, yes. and we can uh, see them as the harbingers of uh, of more to come. And they begin to accelerate. I, mean, I, mm -hmm. I remember also, uh, Kirk, when I was, there, I was studying law in London, and there was an interesting case in the 1900s, actually, where the, the case was that you know, a, a wife had beaten her husband, and he was actually a lord of uh, you know, the, the royal family. But because the woman was not recognized as an individual legal entity, the lawsuit was that he had actually beaten himself. 
because she had no, you know, no legal identity in the eyes of the law. But things have changed considerably since that time. And it is happening in the Islamic world also. But yet overall, I have to say, uh, it is still uh, a question of patriarchal bias that exists. Yeah. Yeah. And that patriarchy, as you, you know, as you uh, said, I think earlier too, it's in, uh, it's in the other Abrahamic faiths as well. It's in Judaism. It's yes. certainly in Christianity. And uh, it is uh, in a lot of places. And that is one of the things that we need to uh, be vigilant about and keep yes. working on. And I think as far as uh, a, a modality to overcome this bias, a lot of women are getting education. And the governments of Muslim countries are realizing a pathway to really overcoming patriarchal bias is through education. So in Bangladesh, for example, where I come from, uh, for women, education is free all the way up to university level. And we are finding that this has created tremendous shifts, not on equal par yet, but shifts in the thinking of men because of education. Right. They're getting into positions where uh, they can have jobs that compete with men. And they are getting into jobs that are decision-making jobs. They're becoming uh, politicians, uh, prime ministers through education. Yeah, yeah, that is huge. Imam Jamal, thank you so much. I really appreciate your talking with us today. Thank you. If you'd like to get in touch with Imam Jamal or stay up to date on one of his many projects, presentations, books, or courses, you can reach him through jamalrahman.com. This has been an episode of the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. We'd like to thank the Ontario Arts Council for their support of this conversation series and their funding of Stitch Class, and the Toronto Arts Council and the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of the Knitting Pilgrim Show. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this about interfaith matters, Stitch Class, and knitting, please check out our episodes at kirkdunn.com or the Knitting Pilgrim YouTube channel. <laughs>